Welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. everyone. I'm Anna Clark Miller. Welcome to Martyr She Wrote. It's our first episode and I am so excited. Um, this podcast has been a long time in the making and so I'm, I'm glad to finally be getting it out there into the world. Uh, before I dive into talking with our very first guest today, I want to give you just a little bit of background on me and why I'm doing this. So I am a licensed therapist in the state of Texas, uh, also soon to hopefully be licensed in the state of Washington, Um, but I specialize in the topic of religious trauma. Um, This is a topic that I've been really interested in for a lot of reasons, but uh, the biggest one is that I've personally experienced it. Um, I I grew up in the Philippines with uh, missionary parents, so spent my whole life there until I was 18, and I had a lot of experiences that were, um, you know, a mixed bag, like a lot of good stuff and a lot of uh, really tough stuff uh, related to just being the child of missionaries, and then After that, I I went to college in the U.S. I went to a Baptist college, actually. Um, I met my husband, and once I left college, I ended up working at a uh, a pretty big mega church in the Dallas area for almost 10 years. And so with that, with those experiences, I, you know, of course, got to see the seedy underbelly of... Uh, church work, but was exposed to several pretty toxic uh, situations, um, and, you know, employers who really took advantage of me. Um, and all of those things kind of left me with a really intense cynicism about religion. Um, And then it wasn't until I was actually starting my master's in counseling that I started to confront the trauma that was underlying a lot of those experiences. And I I don't think at the time I would have articulated it as trauma. I think I probably would have just called it a bad childhood, you know, or like a crappy boss or, you know, something like that. But uh, based on what I know now, it absolutely was trauma and addressing those things and kind of, uh, opening up those boxes was really the best thing I could have done because it allowed me to know myself better. Uh, it allowed me to understand why I had so much anger and bitterness and fear and where all of those triggers were coming from and it paved the way for some incredible healing. And so that's why I really am passionate about religious trauma. And it's why I've decided to specialize in that as a therapist. So 
in my work as a therapist, I, I see a lot of clients who are survivors from a whole gamut of different religious experiences. Um, some would probably fall into the category of what we would call a cult, uh, while others were, you know, in pretty mainstream religions, but they had really specific experiences that led to a sense of terror and helplessness. And that is the, those are the ingredients for trauma, terror and helplessness. Um, and so we'll, we'll definitely get a lot more into how that happens and how um, religion can particularly impact somebody in that way. Um, but I want to start off today with an incredible guest. So her name is Catherine Keller, Dr. Catherine Keller, um, and she is actually a coworker of mine. She owns the Dallas Therapy Collective, which is the practice where I currently see clients. And it has been incredible working for her because she is a pioneer in a lot of ways in the, in the religious trauma world. And so I have had the privilege of learning from her and, you know, not just learning like the facts that she tells me, but a lot really from just her stance towards religion and religious trauma has been so helpful in, you know, teaching me a mature and sort of balanced way of approaching a really, really delicate topic. Um, so without further ado, Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So let's dive in. Um, tell me starting out, I want to just know kind of like, how did you get into this field and what captured your interest in religious trauma to begin with? Yeah, there's a long story with that. So I was working as a counselor at the University of Arkansas, okay? One weekend, I was off seeing my old college friends um, who we, we actually were roommates during college. Um, and she was raised, this one particular friend was raised in Bill Gothard's cult. And while we were living together in college, so, we, so she and I used to share a bathroom, like my senior year of college, we shared a bathroom, we had our own bedrooms. So we would like be in the bathroom, doing our college thing, like brushing our teeth, getting ready. And then we would just literally sit on the bathroom floor for hours and talk about what I didn't understand at that time. I was a business major and didn't know anything about psychology nor trauma. Um, we were talking essentially about her, her trauma through talking about all of these really just extreme stories of things that she had been through in her life. You know, like women weren't really allowed to go to law school or they had to wear skirts or they had to have their hair with long, soft curls. There were these catchphrases and things like that, that she would, you know, talk about. And so fast forward, fast forward to still a long time ago when I was working at the University of Arkansas and I was seeing her one time and, you know, I can't remember if I was talking about like 
maybe going back to school and doing a dissertation. I don't remember how the conversation came up, but the topic, this was back when we called everything spiritual abuse. And so the topic of spiritual abuse came up and we were both just like, is there any research on this? Like, this is really, this is pervasive. Like, is anyone doing research on this? And at that time, when I was working at the University of Arkansas, you know, it's the Bible Belt, 100%. You know, I had already started to gravitate towards working with traumatic stress in general, but then also started noticing, huh, like some of my clients are coming here for trauma because of religion, whether it was like like a particular cult or whether it was just kind of low-key evangelical culture that they were talking about maybe they were gay and told they were going to hell or all of these like horrible things you know so I kind of started to put together like wait a second people are really traumatized or can be really traumatized by religion and so that kind of got the wheels turning about huh if I go back to school maybe I want to really study this so that was kind of where all this came from um, in terms of professionally, not to mention my own experience of, you know, in college going to a pretty like conservative evangelical fundamentalist, whatever you want to call it, charismatic church. Yeah, it's just so funny to think back on these memories because like while I was at that church, every year they had like what they would call a corporate fast where for like some, I don't remember, maybe like a month or something, people would fast and that could be fasting from food, fasting from media, whatever. And so I always participated, not in the full thing, but like in some way, fast from something and attend a prayer meeting. And I remember at that time, that same roommate was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe you're doing this, you know? So I was participating in this high control culture and she was like coming out of a high control culture. Neither one of us could really conceptualize the trauma pieces kind of embedded in those cultures, but we were just like in different places and yet in some ways kind of similar. Well, and that's interesting too, like the difference between her experience growing up in that, and then your experience as a college student getting into it. Exactly. And for me at that time, it felt actually very freeing because I was like, well, I'm choosing to do this fast. Right. Like, you know, when you were raised in Gothard's group, like you didn't choose that. Like you were forced to homeschool and to attend these conferences and to you know, do all those things. But I was like, I'm so empowered. I'm choosing this. Well, of course, years later is when I started to deconstruct like all of the things, you know, like the theology, what is choice? What does consent mean? You know, if there's an expectation that people um, engage in a particular behavior, such as fasting in a religious setting or a church, like, what does that mean? And so, So, yeah. You mentioned something earlier that I wanted to circle back to, which was that back then you were calling it spiritual abuse. And now there's kind of been this shift towards religious trauma. Do you feel like you have a grasp on why there was a change in that terminology? So I have a theory, (laughs) right or wrong. I have a theory. Um, I started to notice the shift in language around the 2016 election the Me Too movement sort of catching wind, of course, that had been started before. When when there became a lot more awareness about 
trauma in general. And there was sort of like a focus on the people that are survivors of trauma and their experiences. That's, and that was around that 2016 era. You know, that's when I started to notice the shift between people talking about spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Also, I still hear, it's interesting, and I, I don't know how quite how to make sense of it, but I still hear that, as, that spiritual abuse language come from people coming out of like super evangelical cultures. So it's, it, I've noticed this trend where sometimes people that are kind of still in that culture, but are maybe in the early stages of coming out of it are using spiritual abuse as a term. So people, you know, might ask me, even clients, like, have I been spiritually abused? What is spiritual abuse? What does that mean? Um, and then also the International Cultic Studies Association, which is a really great resource for religious trauma and spiritual abuse. I mean, they've been doing this work for a really long time. I think that they're an underutilized resource because they do have a wealth of knowledge. Um, they have a whole website that is spiritual abuse resources, I think.com, um, with articles on spiritual abuse because in the Christian evangelical world, spiritual abuse is more palatable than thinking about the same dynamic, but with cult language. And since ICSA is literally has the word cult in the title, you know, the International Cultic Studies Association, there's this sort of disconnect. It's like, oh, I'm a former evangelical. I'm an ex-evangelical. I didn't come out of a cult, right. but I really believe the dynamics are the same. The cultures might be different. The kinds of performance or high control or the theology, the belief systems, you know, those might be different, but the dynamics are really very similar. And so that's another piece. So like they still have that website and I notice in there, some of their materials, they're using that spiritual abuse language. So it hasn't quite all synced up yeah. yet. I do like the inclusivity of calling it religious trauma rather than abuse, because not all trauma is a result of abuse. Mm -hmm. People that's get true. traumatized by, you know, accidents all the time. And so, you know, I think it takes away the sort of villainizing of the, the people in charge and, and sometimes maybe they do hold responsibility, but not always. That's true. And so I kind of like to use both terms. And if I'm working with clients in particular, kind of like mirror their language and then kind of see what fits better, because when there is an abusive person in a religious system, I love, I love for that to just be called out, you know, so talking about this person was spiritually abusive, that can be really empowering, but yes, you're right. Not all, not all trauma reactions come from abuse. Sometimes they come from neglect or accidents or things like that, or cultures and systems and things like that, where it's not always easy to pin a person on it. There are abusive systems, but yes. Yeah. There's a lot just even around language with religious trauma. Well, and so another language related distinction that I've noticed is spirituality versus religion. Um, I, I think, you know, typically my understanding is that when people say spirituality, they're talking about sort of like a connectedness with 
um, with the world or, or with a deity. Um, but when they mean religion, they, they typically are talking about like an organized set of practices and, you know, doctrines and beliefs that are taught. So there, it's kind of a more organizational way of thinking about it. That's exactly right. And I, as I, it's so interesting as you ask people like, well, when you were in the system, if they've exited the system, like, tell me about like, did you believe in God? Like, did you have a relationship with God? If it's from a Christian system with that kind of language. And some people are like, no, I never bought into any of that. I just went because my family went, you know, um, and that I've noticed comes with a certain kind of reaction to that. And, and so again, I would always default to their language, but conceptually, I think of that as like, religious trauma, the rules and regulations, the high expectations, where when people exit systems where they really had a felt sense of spiritual connection with a higher power, and then they they experience abuse, like that is such a spiritual wound. And so there's just so much nuance to what people's experiences are. And you can never assume just because someone's exiting a high control group that they had a spiritual experience inside of it, or, you know, cause there's spirituality, there's religion, there's separate concepts, constructs, but they also can overlap, but they don't always overlap. So you kind of touched on this a second ago, Catherine, but there are definitely some unique things about religious trauma that make it different from, you know, for lack of a better word, regular trauma. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what are some of the unique uh, multidimensional parts of religious trauma? Yeah, um, it's, I'm glad that you asked that because there is an important distinction, you know, and of course, everyone's experience is different. So I think one thing to consider along that line is if somebody was born and raised, because if they are, we might now be talking about the difference between complex trauma and maybe a single incident, not to minimize the single incidents because that's very impactful, but, you know, someone who was born and raised in a high control system and depending on the level of involvement in that system, I mean, if they were going multiple times a week and their caretakers were taking them and sort of reinforcing all of the expectations and the theologies and the doctrines. And if that person didn't really, if they were not really allowed to develop a sense of self, that's very different than say in your thirties, you join a religious group for like a year, you know, and then you exit. I mean, there's a lot of pain that can come out of joining a high control religious group, even for a year, but they're not, we're not talking about the same thing there. So that's like, number one, I encourage people to consider the level of the level of indoctrination, the amount of time that it took, how deep it was. I mean, Anyways, there's a lot around that, but in terms of some, some ideas that make religious trauma a unique specialty within the trauma field, I think the identity piece is a really big part of that. So a lot of people in high control religions, as you all know, is um, really 
they're all in. It's kind of like if, if the religion pitches itself as like your whole purpose in life and your whole identity, that is often different than other kinds of traumas. But a lot of times with high control religion, it's literally your whole identity. And I know from evangelical Christianity, there are even Bible verses to support that, you know, like your identity is in Christ and, and phrases like that, that people really kind of wrap them their whole selves around that identity. And so that's unique because if that is the case for you, then oftentimes every aspect of your life is touched by that religion, your family your social support, maybe even your schooling, what media is allowed, if any, in your home, you know, um, the language used in your home, your sense of history, you know, it just, it touches everything. Um, so that's one thing that I think is really unique about religious trauma. I see a lot of nodding, but <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, I, I love that you mentioned like um, the, the process of being taught how to think is such an important part of this type of trauma, you know, cause it's like when, when you're, you're taught not to use critical thinking in the traditional sense, but you're told to channel it through a very specific lens that can be pretty, um, impairing later on. Oh yeah. If, if you try to start thinking differently, you know, it's like, it's this whole new skill that you were never taught, yes. you know, growing yeah. up. Exactly. And often a sense of betrayal. I mean, I, I had this college boyfriend once who literally had an existential crisis when he realized the earth was more than 2000 years old. I mean, Aww. I know like, yeah, it, you know, like had gone to a Christian school, oh, Christian, I'm going to use in air quotes, um, all this, you know, it just was devastating. It's like com felt completely betrayed and completely lied to. It's like, well, if you've lied about this, what else? Anyway, it is extreme. And yes, that's a good point. The how you think about things, it really shapes that. And then, you know, for people that come out of that, it is so devastating and really traumatic because it's like, it's like your whole world. It feels like it's been a lie. How do you know what to believe? And, and if you've been born and raised and you don't, you have been prohibited from developing a sense of self and a way of thinking for yourself and connecting with your body, then you don't have any, like, what do you go to? So people often will describe sort of this um, spiritual grief or religious grief of like, I always had a thing to turn to and now I don't believe in that anymore. And I don't know what else to turn to do. Is there anything else? And that can just be very depressing and overwhelming. I, I know that's also a reason why a lot of people stay in abusive religious systems yeah. because it's like, you know, it's kind of like leaving an abusive relationship. I don't want to be alone. Exactly. Like when it's good, it's good, you know, so I, I'm going to um, tolerate when it's bad, at, at least, at least there's the, you know, the positive parts of it. Well, and just that loneliness that comes from not having that like church family, you know, and community around you, that can be such a devastating thought. Yeah. Well, we know that we, our brains are hardwired for connection. And so we will do, we will go to the utmost extremes to get that connection. Absolutely. So Catherine, uh, this might be a sensitive subject, but um, do you mind letting us know if, if you identify as religious or if you attend a church? Sure. Yeah. 
it is it is vulnerable because and the reason is is because people attach so much stuff to labels um so it's something i have to navigate clinically and when i'm in spaces talking about religious trauma i do identify as a christian i do attend a church my definition of christian has evolved a lot over the years and yeah and it's an important part of of who i am how how do you think that that connection that you still have to a spiritual community how does that impact the way that you um, operate as a religious trauma therapist i don't really know if it does it's a hard question to answer because it's my own experience with that doesn't feel those feel separate to me. Yeah. I don't really know how it might affect my clinical work. I, I don't even know that it really does. I mean, if a client asks me about my own identity, then it does because there's often thoughts and feelings attached to that. And I have to walk this ground, you know, this balance of not feeling the need to defend my identity or my choices or my behaviors, but also giving them space to have reactions to it. Because when they've been harmed by religious people or churches or religious spaces, like that is fair. And so that can be really, that can be really tricky to kind of walk that. But if they don't bring it up or ever ask, I don't know that it impacts it really at all. I mean, a lot of my, what kind of taps into some of my religious beliefs are also my humanistic beliefs of like, love all of the people and consent is really important <laughs> and let people be like honor people for who they are and grow with them and support them as they're growing into who they're becoming. And like, for me, that does have an intersection with my personal religious views, but that that's not any different than what I believe are just like humanistic views. Yeah, I don't necessarily know that they're that my own religious identity and church attendance status like impacts my clinical work, but it is part of who I am. It's part of my history. And yeah, usually what impacts it, I think, is more the reactions if they know that. And sometimes for some clients, it's like comforting. And for others, it's really threatening and scary. Well, and, and I think one of the things that I really like about your response to that question, because I've, I've, we've talked about this before, yeah. um, is that you, you don't seem defensive. And I think that really is the main thing that a trauma survivor is looking for is to see whether you're an atheist or a believer, like, is that bias going to color the way that you try to defend a certain thing or steer me towards a certain thing. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's just unethical counseling. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I can kind of see, well, because, so I grew up in like the nineties where apologetics was a really big deal. And there were books like a case for Christ, you know, and Right. I see. Yeah. Yep. Eyes are rolling here. <laughs> and so this sort of need to defend your defend the faith, you know, this sort of need to defend your belief system was really embedded in a lot of us. So self-included. And so 
like, I like you picking up on that, on that piece, Anna, about, and I've had to work through that, you know, cause I think I used to, to be like, well, I go to a church, but it's really progressive or it's really like, da, 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 da. here are all the quality, you know, the qualifiers that make it okay. Yeah. And in the past few years, I don't know why, if it's age or what, <laughs> I'm just kind of like, I don't care. This is who I am. Let's talk about you. Like what, you know, what would be helpful for you and what in knowing that, what does that bring up for you? Cause we're here for your healing. If we're talking about clinical work, we're not here for me to defend anything, but I do like to keep that in mind that culturally speaking, if you come from an evangelical environment in a certain era, you know, where apologetics was a really big deal, then of course people, you know, early in their deconstruction and or religious trauma healing stages might sort of default to that because when that binary thinking has been sort of embedded in who you're, then it becomes embodied. It's like it's embedded in your brain, it seeps down, it becomes embodied. Then it's really hard and it takes a lot of work to kind of break free from some of that um, binary thinking of like, here's what I believe and here's why. And, and so I try to be really understanding if when people kind of need to engage with me in that sense, um, and it happens clinically, you know, it's kind of like, well, why do you do this? And I can't believe someone would take their kids to church. And I think that's awful. And you're lying to them and all that stuff. And all of that, I try to have a lot of compassion for because it literally makes sense given what their experiences are. It really seems like it's, it's hard to just sort of amputate that part of yourself, you know, because our biases are so intrinsically part of who we are. And so I, I can understand why somebody coming for trauma therapy, for religious trauma therapy, would would want to know that. Yes, very good point. And I feel so strongly about this because sometimes when I consult with people, and I've talked with you all about this, when I consult with people who, you know, they're like, oh, you specialize in religious trauma. Maybe we have a shared client, you know, maybe there's like, I'm seeing an individual, they're seeing my client and a couple or seeing them for something else or whatever the case might be. I always get a little nervous when I hear people say like, oh yeah, no, I don't practice from a faith perspective. And you know, and, oh yeah, I don't let my faith or my religion leak into the therapy. And then they're like, but what do you believe? And okay, so you identify in a certain way. Okay, I'll send clients your way. I'm like, ah, you know, like the bias is right there. And so oh, I'm so glad that like here at Dallas Therapy Collective that we have a team fielding a lot of these referrals that is really attentive to those dynamics because when that leaks in, it is not safe. It's not safe. And sadly, a lot of clinicians aren't aware of when their biases leak out, you know, and all our biases are going to leak out at some point, you know, and I know, I know when that happens with me, with the clients, I try, if I catch it to own it, like, oh, well, this is how I think about, it. this is probably my, my thing coming out here. Um, but there's like, levels of that right and you hope you hope when i'm consulting with other people you hope that people have their biases in check enough that they're aware of them and can like use them in a positive way clinically rather than that lack of awareness and it's really making people unsafe because that's another part of this work is doing therapy with people that have been to quote unquote christian counselors or religious counselors or regular quote-unquote counselors that didn't identify that way, but kind of bait and switched them with Bible verses. Mm, so true. 
Okay, so I'm going to change topics a little bit here. Um, Catherine, can you tell us what your preferred definition of religious trauma is? Yes. So I really appreciate the definition that comes out of the Religious Trauma Institute um, that Brian Peck and Laura Anderson have created in conjunction with the Reclamation Collective, which is a, a practice that works with religious trauma as well. And the way that they define religious trauma is the physical, emotional, or psychological response to religious beliefs, practices, or structures that overwhelm an individual's ability to cope and return to a sense of safety. Acute religious trauma results from a single incident. Chronic trauma results from repeated and prolonged adverse religious experiences. Complex religious trauma results from exposure to varied and multiple adverse religious experiences often as an invasive and interpersonal nature. And to clarify that a little bit, they, they define adverse religious experiences as any experience of a religious belief, practice, or structure that undermines an individual's sense of safety or autonomy and or negatively impacts their physical, social, emotional, relational, or psychological well-being. I really like thinking about some of this as adverse religious experiences because it takes a little bit of the edge off like trauma can feel like such an intense word and doesn't always fit and so I find that really helpful and more palatable and accurate for some clients to talk about adverse religious experiences yeah well and I know they they modeled a lot of that language off of the adverse childhood experiences test that's used to assess for trauma all over the world yes yeah and then another definition that I like comes from Johnson and Van Bonderen um, in 1991 from a, a book, and they define it as spiritual abuse as the mistreatment of a person who is in need of help, support, or greater spiritual empowerment with the result of weakening, undermining, or decreasing that person's spiritual empowerment. So I like that that one kind of speaks to those power dynamics, like the person that was supposed to help you harmed you. Yeah what was supposed to offer enrichment actually ended up being a detriment to you spiritually. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we have that with, you know, public protection police officers that we assume are going to help us and how devastating is it, especially in certain populations where they've been harmful, you know? Yeah. And so just that whole, how the sense of betrayal that when you're supposed to trust somebody or some entity and that very person or thing like not only doesn't help you, but actively harms you. It's just another level of, of pain and trauma. Yeah. And unsafety. Yeah, absolutely. Catherine, one question that I've heard a lot of people ask who are recovering from religious trauma or uh, maybe just learning about it and hoping to avoid it is how do I know that a particular religious group isn't abusive. Like we, we have the signs of, of what is abusive, but like, how would I know if someone is consciously trying to avoid that kind of high control dynamic? Yeah. So one thing that I see a lot with religious trauma is an intentional disconnect from a person to their own body and their own intuition. 
not that that doesn't happen in other kinds of traumas because it does, but often with religious trauma, that's part of the really mind control and brainwashing indoctrination. If you want to be a little softer, that's part of that. Right. And so to this question about how do people know you, you really don't know until your body tells you. And so what I see happen and this ha this happens with other kinds of traumas too, whether it's domestic violence or what have you, is people will jump from abusive relationship to abusive relationship, abusive setting to abusive setting. And they're like, oh my gosh, this environment was so different than the old one. And yeah, you can dress an environment up really differently and it might still have the same underlying dynamics of power and control. And so part of how you know is doing the work to not only deconstruct from toxic theology and doctrine and culture, but to also connect with your own body. I mean, your, our bodies are our superpowers. Our bodies give us so much information about who is okay and who is safe and who is scary and who is creepy and who is a joy to be around. And in high control environments, a lot of times people are taught not to listen to their bodies or they're just not taught to listen to their bodies. And so if someone is leaving an abusive system and maybe they're a spiritual person and they're like experimenting with another spiritual group or system, if you don't do that work to kind of connect with the underlying dynamics that sustain the trauma, the power and control, then unfortunately you could be subject to being re-victimized by another abusive group. And so that would be my encouragement to people is to, once you've identified, hey, I've been in this not okay environment or this really abusive environment to kind of work through the dynamics that happened that got you into it. How did you, what happened to get you out of it and sort of look back earlier in your life to maybe some red flags that you might've missed and let yourself connect with your earlier self and kind of have compassion and understanding about what might've been going on. So maybe I was perceiving that this pasture was really narcissistic, for example, but I didn't want to say anything because everybody really loved that person. And so having self-compassion for where you were at that time and validating the earlier cues that your body was giving you that you ended up bypassing for the sake of that connection. So letting yourself go through that journey and connecting with your body and your intuition. And then if you engage in some other kind of spiritual environment, you'll have more data, you know? So if something a little off happens um, or something great happens, you know, your, your body will, will tell you things about that. And over time, hopefully you'll be able to identify, does this place, do these people feel safe or not? Yeah. Sounds like you, you are really talking about cultivating self-trust, yeah. which, you know, requires a lot of healing to get back to a place or maybe for the first time ever to get to a place where you trust your own instincts and intuition and experiences. Yes. And if you're born and raised in a high control group, that takes longer because then you're not returning to self-trust. You might be building it for the first time ever. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you mentioned a little bit about um, being in a religious group in college that was fairly high control. What uh, what were some of the dynamics about that personal experience of yours that, at least in hindsight, you recognize like, oh, huh, that was problematic? <laughs> yeah. So definitely the first thing that comes to mind is a lot of purity culture dynamics that was problematic. And I didn't know it at the time. I just thought, oh, this is purity and that's automatically good and great. And, you know, this is godly and whatever, whatever I might've thought at that, at that time. Also looking back, I can see that there were high expectations of like time commitments, being responsible to like mentor, or we would call it discipling people being mentored or discipled. Um, so a lot of time commitments that, you know, it sort of took over what it, it was easy for it to take over my life at the time. And then looking back again at the time, didn't see this, but the over spiritualizing of a lot of things that maybe don't necessarily need to be spiritualized, like mm, you know, preach. <laughs> does, <laughs> if there is a God, does God care where I park? You know, if there, you know, do, I don't know if that's a big deal. Like, I don't know whatever. If you pray for parking spaces, I'm not going to judge you, but also it, not everything has to be so intense. And I, I see that a lot with people coming healing from environments like that, because it feels like everything, every decision has to be so intense. And looking back, I definitely felt that way myself of like, I have to pray and ask God about all these decisions I'm making and what's okay and what's not. And so again, that kind of reinforces that dynamic of, I don't know what's best for me. God knows what's best for me. So I'm going to pray to God to give me this answer, but then I'm not really sure if I'm hearing from God or if really that's me, but what if it's me, but I think it's not the right thing or the godly thing. So then I'm anyway, it's very confusing. Well, and on top of all that, you have the stakes are the highest that they could possibly be. You know, like there's all this confusion and doubt. And then it's like, but if I make the wrong decision, I might go to hell or somebody else might go to hell because I didn't, you know, witness to them or whatever. And so it's like an anxiety disorder in the making. (laughs) Oh my gosh, totally. And such like martyr complex situation, persecution complex situation going on. So those are definitely some dynamics that now looking back, I'm like, huh wasn't the greatest. That was not so healthy. So I'm glad I can see that now. Yeah. So as a religious trauma therapist, you know, you've been doing this work for a decade now. Um, and I know that you've worked with survivors from different faiths. What have been some of the most challenging cases for you when it comes to therapy? So One thing that comes to mind is I think of abusive environments as kind of on a continuum, like not every abusive environment is a cult. Some are, but there's sort of gradients, if you will, of levels of control. And so it can be challenging for me when someone is, maybe they started in a super, super high control, like ultra restrictive environment and they've stepped down, like deconstructed from some of that into an environment that a lot of us would still consider to be extremely high control. 
But for them, they feel like they're in a place of being very free because it's it's a few notches down from where they used to be. And so that's where I have to, you know, we were talking about biases here, sort of watch myself and and really pay attention to my biases that might slip out of being, you know, like as a feminist being like, but it's okay to have a job if you're a woman, you know, like that's not really clinically appropriate for me to say in those words, you know, um, depending on where the client is. And so that can be really tricky. Like I made a, a, a mistake once when I've made a lot of mistakes, but this particular mistake was I had suggested mindfulness um, to a client that had stepped down in that way from an ultra high control to a less ultra high control group. And it was really offensive to her and she didn't tell me. And then after the session, I was like, oh my gosh, I like how soon I forget like anything meditation or yoga is very scary to people that truly believe that that is demonic or satanic. And so the next session I checked in with, with her and was like, I apologized. And I just said, what I suggested to you was not appropriate. And I am so sorry. And luckily we were able to repair that rupture, but it really caused, it definitely caused a rupture. And I, to this day, don't know, because we worked for a little while longer and then didn't anymore. And I don't know if that might have something to do with why we ended. Um, so that's a hard one is checking those biases when people are in really, you know, um, what I would consider like pretty extreme cultures. And then also I find it hard just personally when I just know things about churches and about people, you know, that are in systems, some of them in a lot of power. And it's like, I hear about these abusive situations going on, you know, victims that if they speak out, haven't been listened to. And then I like, I know who the abusers are, like not all of them, but I know some of the people that are abusers in my city. And that feels really hard because I can't really do anything about that as an, as somebody's individual counselor. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely a lot of challenges. And, and as you were speaking, it was just really reminding me how important it is for therapists who are going to do religious trauma therapy to understand some of those nuances, especially with the beliefs that might seem just totally out there to someone who wasn't raised in any kind of high control religion. Yeah. But what are some of the rewarding things that you've seen working with religious trauma? It's so rewarding to, to see people like get their lives back or just get their lives for the first time. I mean, it will make me cry in session when people say like, oh my gosh, I never knew I could have choices. Like just today, hearing someone say like, my Christian friends would never approve of my choices, but I've never been happier. And that that shame voice, that guilt voice is like, you shouldn't be doing this, has like that volume on that voice has dialed down to nothing or almost nothing. It's so rewarding. And I just yes. love that. Like it's going to impact people really for generations. I mean, that's what trauma healing does. Yeah. One time in a session, a client told me like, 
I don't hate myself anymore. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, oh my God, like how, how do I even take that in? That is so yeah. epic and so important. Yeah. And like, it's, it's so validating that the work we're doing really matters. It matters. It is so tragic to sit in that grief and it's so beautiful to experience the freedom that they're finding for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially when they're leaving a place that told them they were already free, you know, it's like the gaslighting, ah, the gaslighting, gaslighting. Yes. Well, and you know, high control groups teach us to gaslight ourselves. So it just makes it very convenient for them. And then that makes therapy really hard (laughs) because, you know, people are saying, well, I shouldn't think this, or I shouldn't want this. I shouldn't desire this. This is wrong. This is bad. And that's just, I believe a function of that brainwashing. And then that internal gaslighting, which just keeps it, it maintains the power structures. Yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Yep. If we are wanting to promote trauma-informed church leadership, but obviously don't want to do that in an alienating way, how do we start those conversations? Yeah. You know, cause that's, that's delicate and it's hard. Yeah. And well, I know. And I think part of it, no, I, I totally agree. And part of the problem as I see it is this in-group out-group thing that the high control cultures have, you know, and if you're not in group, there's no trust, which is why people assess us as therapists. Like, are you Christian? Are you not? Did it, are you in? Are you out? You know? Right. And are so, you on my side or their side? Exactly. So if we were to like go to a watermark or the village and be like, Hey, we've got this presentation. We want to train your leaders on how not to abuse people. Like <laughs> they would laugh at us. Like, because we would be considered out group with them. I definitely think that talking about it from a like trauma informed or like neurodiversity angle of like, Hey, even if you are doing things that you don't believe are abusive, because of course you wouldn't do them if you thought they were abusive, right. You know, that doesn't keep people from being impacted in a particular way. So here's just some information on possible risks. Well, yeah. And since mental health, there's more awareness now of mental health and and of trauma, yet people in the system still are having reactions. And I don't think they quite grasp what trauma is and how it impacts people. It's kind of like, well, that person's gone. You should be fine now. So I feel like there's like love, like, like levels of openness with churches, like where's the match where there's a need and they haven't quite like caught the vision of understanding mental health and trauma quite yet, but they're open to it at least. Well, and that's, that just makes it all the more important that we do talk about this topic with empathy and generosity and grace and giving people the benefit of the doubt, because otherwise we're just perpetuating the alienation and division. Well, Catherine, um, is there anything else you would like to add that we haven't touched on yet today? I mean, the only thing that comes to mind just is that healing is possible, even from toxic religious systems. And it's really hard, but it's possible. Yeah, so true. It's such a simple message, but such a needed one. When When you're hurting, it's hard to believe that it can get better. Well, your whole world is crushed. 
And it, I mean, it's devastating. I mean, that's what trauma is literally an overwhelmed nervous system. Your whole world is crashed. You're crushed. It feels like the very thing that you've always turned to isn't an option. And in fact, you feel betrayed by that and maybe betrayed by God. If you even believe in God anymore, you know, everything is crashed and it, it's hard, but to your earlier question about like the reward of this, it's like, it is possible and people do it even amidst really devastating religious trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so something we're doing with all of our guests, uh, who come on the show is, is we try to end on a lighter note. Um, and so I wanted to know if there were any stories you had of, you know, anything funny that you experienced in church culture or, you know, maybe while working in religious trauma that you thought our listeners would find entertaining. Gosh, well, I don't know how funny this is going to be retelling it, <laughs> but I do remember in high school and youth group, um, we were like, I don't know, on a mission trip, probably <laughs> we were like every night there was a worship service during the day we would do like a service project. And I remember they were showing this video and this woman comes on. I don't know how old she was, but I remember her talking about her spiritual journey and she was like, just knowing and loving God just makes me a really, really humble person. And I'm like, <laughs> so grateful. And I remember looking at my friend and being like, what? Like, I'm sorry, humble people don't say that. And so yeah. and I got a really good kick out of that. And I think that maybe was the beginning of a little bit of subversive humor within the, <laughs> the religious environments of being like, okay, I'm sorry. No. Yeah. You, you definitely have to laugh at stuff like that. <laughs> Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Well, Catherine, I just want to thank you one more time for being here. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I hope that we can, you know, potentially have you back on the podcast again in the future, just to, to continue this awesome conversation. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for saying that. And I appreciate being asked to be on. would love to come on. I love this work and I love what you are doing with this work. You're taking it global. I mean, the impact that you are going to have on people that are struggling and working through their pain, I think is huge. And I am so appreciative. Thanks. I, I sure hope that it has the intended impact. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye y'all. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at empathyparadigm.com. Bye.